Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I was pretty excited about this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I uh, I got to talk with Kathy Wilburn. Kathy is with a company called the RND Group, and they're software, medical device software development experts. They've been doing this for a long time. They really know their stuff. And the topic that Kathy and I explore is IEC 62304. So definitely something that um, you want to learn about, how the IEC standard can be a framework to help you with your software development processes, whether your device is software as a med device or if your product includes software in any way, shape, or form. This is definitely a podcast that you're going to want to listen to. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I'm real excited. A first-time guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Kathy Wilburn. Kathy is the Director of Quality Assurance and Compliance for the R&D Group. Kathy, welcome. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. So we've got an exciting topic to dive into uh, here in a few moments. I, I thought maybe you could spend you know, a few seconds giving people a little bit of, of uh, an idea of who the R&D group is and what you do and that sort of thing. So do you mind taking a few moments to, to share that? No, that'd be great. Yes, so the R&D group, our primary focus is on software development for medical devices. And we have clients that range from startups to people or companies that dominate the industry. And we help them write their software. Oftentimes they will have they will have the resources in-house to do the hardware and the chemistry, but they don't have a software development team. So we'll take over that part of the project and help write the software all the way from planning and requirements through verification and then um, through the submission process as well. And then we also have another side of our business where we help clients with compliance and also submission readiness. And we do assessments of their design history file documents and also their quality management system documents as they relate to software to see if they meet the international standards and the FDA regulations and EU regulations that they need to. And, and you know, and one thing that folks should know about the R&D group that I think is really important is the R&D group has been uh, around for a long time, way before the the notion uh, or the term software as a medical device even existed. So folks that certainly know their stuff, they've been there, done that. Uh, really a great group, experienced group uh, of folks that can help you with a lot of your software needs. So, you know, maybe no surprise to folks listening after Kathy shared that introduction. One of the topics we're going to talk to you today or talk about today is a little bit about software as a medical device, but specifically, I thought we could dive into this, I don't know if it's infamous, but I'm going to say infamous standard out there that creates, I think, a lot of confusion for folks. And that standard is IEC 62304. So uh, are you ready, Kathy? Absolutely. So uh, you probably have that standard memorized. 
Somewhat, I do. <laughs> so I get, what, what we live by. And then also, like I said, we do gap analyses and, you know, yeah. we, you know, analysis against it as well. So what, I mean, for, for those that may be new to, or maybe aren't super familiar with 62304, what is the standard and, and why should I care? Okay. So it's about, it defines software lifecycle processes for medical device software. And it's recognized by the FDA as a consensus, recognized consensus standard. And so it gives you, when you follow it correctly, it gives you most of the documentation that you need to do, say, a 510K or a PMA submission. And that's one of the biggest reasons is that, you know, for that, because of that. And then also, it also gives you good software engineering practices it's, it's really based on fundamental good software engineering and it's not prescriptive. And so you have leeway in how you do your activities and tasks and execute your processes, but they just, they provide a framework for you for how to do your software, what you need to do. Yeah. And I think that's good. And, and there's, I think it's important. This is uh, not a, an FDA standard. You did mention that it is an FDA recognized consensus standard. So some folks might be a little bit confused by that term. What does an FDA recognized consensus standard mean? And, and, and why should I, what, why does that matter if I'm a, a company developing software? Sure. So it's a standard that the FDA has evaluated and recognized for use in satisfying regulatory requirements. And then they've also published it as a notice in the Federal Register. And if you go on FDA's website, you can see the list of all of the recognized consensus standards. And um, a consensus standard is something that's developed by private sector. So like you said, it's not developed by the FDA, so it's not a regulation but it's something that the FDA suggests that you use. You using it is voluntary, and it's basically a, a you know a an alternative procedure to address some of your software development needs. Yeah, and and I think a lot some of the folks that I talk to who you know they're they're very adamant about six two three zero four, almost to the the point of saying that. I have to follow this. Uh, but you said something I think it was really key uh, a moment ago is it's not intended to be prescriptive. So maybe I, I guess explain a little bit why folks might be confused on this is you know the way I have to do something um, versus it being more of a, a guideline or a suggestion, so to speak. Yeah. So to go kind of back to your point of um, it is voluntary to use it, but I would say in our industry now for software, it's what everyone follows now. And I think people see the value in it. And then what you were saying about um, it not being prescriptive. So it gives you a kind of provides a framework, but it doesn't give you the exact methodology or it doesn't define a life cycle model that you have to follow. It's up to the manufacturers to decide and document how they're going to meet the requirements. Sometimes I think sometimes I think it would be nice if they said exactly, this is exactly how we want you to do this. I think sometimes it might make it a little easier, you know, because there's all kinds of opinions about, you know, how you're going to meet a particular requirement. But it does 
what, what's really cool about it is it gives you the freedom to introduce it into your software development organization that you already have established. And so you can take your, the processes that you already have, you can introduce this, and then you can determine where you need to tweak to meet the requirements. But it's not like you have to do a complete overhaul as, as if you were switching to a whole new lifecycle development model. Yeah, and and I um, will probe into that a little bit. So if I remember, the official title of IEC 62304 is, quote, medical device software, software lifecycle processes. And I want to talk a little bit about the confusion that this standard plays with respect to things like agile, waterfall, and design control. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But maybe a good place to, to dive in a little bit deeper is expand upon the life cycle processes that are described within 62304. Sure. So it covers your software development, which is the largest portion of it. And there's many categories or many sub processes um, defined in there. And then it also covers your software maintenance, your software risk management, your software configuration management, and then your software problem resolution. Those are the high-level processes that it covers. Okay. And and so let me just use an example. So a lot of times, you know, Greenlight will talk to folks who are developing some sort of software, um, but they don't they they don't they're not experienced medical device professionals. This might be their really their first foray into quote regulated uh, development. Um, I, sometimes I hear people, you know, screaming about 62304 and this isn't how we design and develop software. So do you have any thoughts about that? For me, I, you know, I'm, I have a software engineering background and, you know, have been a developer and a tester and kind of gone through it. And I really see it as good software practice, but I think that the, you know, there is no model that's depicted. So you have to decide what model you're going to apply to it. So if you're going to do agile, then you kind of have to figure out because the way the standard is written, it probably does come across um, a little waterfallish, you know, because it, it's, it's a document, right? And so it lists all the processes and it, it lists the tasks. But you, you can extract those and you can um, put them and apply them in an agile model just by, you know, doing iterations, uh, you know, implementing in iterations. Now, at our company, there are some things that we kind of do, you know, waterfallish. We do a lot of our planning first, our software development planning, and that includes also our requirements and a lot of times our architectural design. We'll do that stuff up front and then we'll do iterations of the detailed design and unit implementation and we'll do iterations of those and or sprints, whatever, if you want to call them sprints, you could do that for the Agile. And then we work to integrate those and then we do a release. And I think another reason people are kind of hesitant with it or, you know, unsure about it is because in medical device software, you have this kind of like this final phase of formal software verification. And you really have to have, you can do system testing as you go, but you have to do the final verification at the end. 
So it's that usually wouldn't be part of your normal sprints. It would probably be a separate sprint in itself or multiple sprints to do that verification. Yeah. And so let's kind of peel back some of the layers. And you said a couple of things, agile, waterfall, six, you've been talking about the, the life cycle processes described in 62304. And I think a lot of folks don't understand how all of these can be blended together in an effective way. And, you know, certainly you alluded to this a little bit as far as some of the, the R&D group practices. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what are your thoughts? How can you blend 62304 and Waterfall uh, and Agile? And you gave a couple of examples, but maybe elaborate on that just a little bit more. Sure. There's actually a guidance, um, no technical report. I'll have to get back with you on the number. I think it's, sure. I think it's TIR 57, but um, I, need to, I need to confirm. But it talks about how to implement 62304 with an agile methodology. So it talks about where exactly you're doing your sprint planning and where you're writing your user stories and kind of how all that joins together with the requirements of 62304. So in 62304, like I said, the biggest, uh, the largest part is your software development process. And it contains processes related to your software development planning, things that you, you, know, you do up front, how you're going to run your um, software development, how you plan to um, you know, do your requirements, your design, how you're going to implement, what standards you're going to use, um, how you're going to integrate, those types of things. And then you have your requirements definition and, and then your architectural design, your detailed design, implementing your actual implementing and writing your source code, your integration, integration testing, your system testing, and then your release. And so those are the the, um, high-level sections of the software development process. And like I said, you can determine which of those make sense to do in an agile way. We do kind of um, an incremental iteration here at R&D. So we do incremental releases and so we may not, we have our requirements pretty well defined from at the beginning, but we're going to further refine them as we go and as we start implementing the features, um, you know, in that first release. And then, we'll, then the next release will further refine those. So it's not, you don't have to do it in a waterfall method where you have all of your planning done, you have all of your requirements locked down and you can't change them. So it's, it's not written that way. It's written where you have that flexibility. Yeah. And while you were chatting, I, I did a quick Google search. And I think the TIR that you're referring to is TIR 45. And this is an Amy guidance document, guidance on the use of agile practices in the development of medical device software. So a great companion document to yes. IEC 62304. All right. So let's... Yeah, uh, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I know sometimes folks say, hey, can you send me IEC 62304? And then I'll probably get some folks that say, hey, can you send me the TIR 45? I would love to. Uh, however, the way these things work is they're, they're fee for access. So you'll have to buy them. They're not free, but they're not crazy expensive either. And, and I would encourage you, if you are developing software uh, in any way, shape or form in a medical device, whether that's 
standalone software as a med device or whether it's embedded firmware and software for uh, an electromechanical device, that these are good guides to be aware of and, and to help inform how you design and develop your process for developing software. That's a good framework. Folks, I want to remind you that I am talking with Kathy Wilburn. Kathy is Director of Quality Assurance and Compliance at the R&D Group. And I would encourage you to go check out and learn more about the R&D Group. It's pretty simple. The website is the letters rndgroup.com, all one word, no spaces. Um, but as Kathy mentioned earlier, they, they work with companies of all shapes and sizes, from initial designs to product updates, and they are software development pros. So, uh, And then they do exclusively medical device software development. So these, these are folks who know their stuff. So definitely go check out uh, therndgroup.com to learn more about how they can help. And of course, um, I want to shift gears here in a moment with Kathy, but... Uh, one of the key things that's really important and also creates a lot of confusion for software developers uh, in the med device space is this notion of design controls and risk and how does this all play in uh, to your software development process. Well, design controls, effective documentation of that, conducting design reviews, maintaining a design history file, having a risk assessment, mitigating those risk assessments <clears throat> through various controls, uh, is very important as well uh, because you are a medical device company and we've, we've got you covered with that at Greenlight Guru. We have built a medical device QMS software platform designed specifically and only for medical device companies and it was designed by actual medical device professionals within the Greenlight Guru medical device QMS software. We have workflows for managing your design and development, your risk uh, all the way through those product development activities and even post-market workflows to manage quality events and feeding that back into your design and development process if you need to make design changes. So be sure to go over to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the Greenlight Guru software platform. All right, so I mentioned it, uh, I hinted at it a moment ago, Kathy, but I want to talk a little bit about design controls and risk. Um, you know, we... Specifically here in the U.S., obviously, design controls are defined in FDA 21 CFR 820.30. Uh, it's also pretty well defined within ISO 13485. Uh, and, you know, from a 1345 and an 820 perspective, especially on things like design controls or design and development, these things are very much in harmony with one another. Uh, but I hear a lot of people that say that that's not in harmony with 62304, or it's not in harmony with Agile. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I wouldn't say it's not in harmony, but it's not part of the standard. Design controls are not mentioned um, explicitly. However, there are some requirements related to things having, um, documents having to be under configuration management um, before they're reviewed or source code having to be under configuration management um, before they're verified, which in configuration management would be applicable to design control. And then also they talk about um, change requests, which also is applicable to the whole design control process. 
So I think maybe that could be part of the confusion that those terms are explicitly used. But when you're writing your processes, you just have to make sure that you understand your software development process and you understand, um, you know, what parts, uh, you know, what documents, what artifacts need to be under design control, even though it's not stated in the actual standard. Yeah, and and then at the end of the day, I mean, design controls are required to, to be a medical device company in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so figuring out how to map, uh, you know, TIR forty five and six two three zero four and Agile waterfall, whatever methodology that you're using for your system, but but at the end of the day, the artifacts that are important from a regulatory point of view will be the contents of your design history file and your and your design controls. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about risk management. Um, most folks who are in the med device space are acutely aware of ISO 14971. Uh, and the most recent version of that standard is the 2019 version, which was published uh, in mid-December. Um, how does risk management play into a software development process? Yeah, so the software development process um, defined in 62304 is actually all risk-driven. So they have, um, they've defined software safety classifications and they are um, class A, B, and C with C being the highest risk. And then the, um, once you determine what your software safety class is, then the standard defines which of the requirements that you have to meet depending on um, what your class is of your software. So a lot of times we will determine the software safety class for a whole software system. And that will get us started. And and they have a flowchart to help you determine that in the standard. And that gets you started with what processes and what activities that you have to to do in the standard. And then as you get into defining um, your requirements and your architecture and you do your your software hazard analysis, then you're going to be able to break it down a little bit more. And you could have different software items. That's the term they use. I think most often in software, we think of software components or software modules, but the, the, the term used in 62304 is software items. And once you have your software hazard analysis done or, you know, started, then you can define different software safety classes for those individual items. And then that will give you um, different processes that um, you need to follow for those higher risk. We at R&D Group will develop our software based on class B And then if we have class C software items, then we'll do the additional work that we need to do for those. Okay. So let me um, ask you a question and you can confirm or deny whether this is truth or myth. Um, So uh, oftentimes I hear a software development firm or or a company that's developing software for their medical device they will often say to me, John, uh, medical device requires uh, waterfall development, and that's just not how we operate as a software de- company. Is that true or is that a myth? It's a myth. Here to, here we don't do waterfall here. We don't do waterfall here. 
um, basically what, what I said before is you can take those, you, you know, it, like I said, if you just read the standard, it looks like it's waterfall, but um, it doesn't have to be implemented in a waterfall method. Yeah. And I, and I think that's further. Yeah. I was just going to, sorry to jump in there, but I, I, um, that's further corroborated if you read, uh, so the FDA design control um, regulations, I mean, it's, there's not a lot there. If you printed it out, it's maybe a page, page and a half. Um, but I would encourage you, uh, those listening, to go read the FDA design control guidance. It's a very good document. Uh, it was authored, I think, and in, in published in 1996. And some of you might be saying, oh, that was forever ago. Yeah, it's true. But even in that guidance document, uh, it discusses the iterative nature of product development. And, you know, I've worked on software projects, uh, devices and, and things. And I've also worked on mechanical um, products. And I will say, uh, everyone listening, even if you're not software, iterative agile methodologies are uh, the best way to do product development, regardless of whether it's uh, a mechanical product, an electromechanical product, or a software product, the the whole idea is is to learn, iterate, learn, iterate, learn, mm-hmm. um, and refine. And refine, yeah, you know, because at the end of the day, we're trying to make the safest, most effective uh, products that we possibly can, and and uh, you know, so that iteration is definitely embraced from a regulatory framework. Um, it, it, it's it's not. There's nothing that says there's no expectation that from a regulatory body that says thou shalt do waterfall development. So I just I'm I'm glad to hear that that you uh, can dis- help dispel that that rumor and that myth <laughs> as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um. So one other thing that creates some confusion, I think, um, especially uh, let, let's go down the regulatory path. So, um, and I'll speak a little bit to like the 510K path here in the U.S. Uh, if a 510K submission has, um, you know, the, the table of contents or what's expected are pretty clear, but I think it gets sort of confusion, confusing, excuse me, confusing and feels very antiquated when it comes to the sections pertaining to software. Can you speak a little bit to that and, and I guess maybe elaborate a little bit on uh, some of the FDA's guidances on software? I guess, what do you, what do you mean by antiquated? I, I, what parts or what do you feel is antiquated? Well, and I think that it, maybe get back to this confusion that folks have about their process and, and that sort of things. And maybe it's a terminology thing, but, um, you know, the, the level of concern and mm-hmm. software requirements and um, the, the design and the architecture and the VMV activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it's just yet another point that you were trying to, to illustrate on a moment ago when talking about 62304 and some of the the expectations or the ideals behind that. I just think it creates a lot of confusion for folks that, you know, and and maybe it's all rooted in this notion that, that the regulatory framework for um, uh, medical devices and specifically software is very out of date. A lot of the rules and the guidances, et cetera, that were written by FDA and, and other regulatory bodies uh, you know, it's decades old. So can you maybe speak to, to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay. Now, now that I understand exactly what you're asking. 
So yeah, if you look at the um, the recommendation for what you should submit, it's based on level of concern. And so those those are minor, moderate, and major. And they they somewhat align with your class A, B, and C for 62304. However, level of concern, you can't, you don't ever change. So you determine it, you know, at the beginning of you know your, your software development and you don't change it. But your class you can change based on risk control measures that you implement. So there, that's the only difference between the two of those. But like you said, the um, submission is based, what you have to submit is based on the level of concern. And the documentation that you have to concern, that you submit, if you're following 62304, you have what you need for that submission. You, you know, your SDP, your software development plan has everything you need to populate your um your software environment description section, software development environment description. And then you have your requirements, you have your, um, you know, like you said, your B&B, your architecture, your design, your um, design specifications. Um, you have, cause you have detailed design in um, 62304 and you have um, your release procedures, how you handle your configuration management. That's all part of the submission as well as um, any residual uh, anomalies. Yeah, so there's very good alignment. Uh, with yeah. Kathy, do you deal a lot with outside US software development? We, have, we do some, yes. I, I know. It's the right word, but some. All right, well, I, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. So mm -hmm. thanks for your understanding on, on this. But um, I know that, uh, EUMDR is a whole other can of worms that I don't do not intend to dive into today. But but I know the little bit or the, what I do know about EUMDR is um, a lot of the updates impact software uh, in medical devices quite a bit. Um, what are you hearing, or what what themes are you picking up on in in the work that you're doing on how EUMDR is going to impact software? as a medical device or just medical device software in general? Yeah, so when, um, when I first started, you know, looking at that, the EU MDD, which I know now, you know, is outdated now, but it's, um, the requirements of it are fulfilled by following 62304 for software. And I couldn't tell you exactly um, if there's anything missing for MDR at this point. Um, a lot of it has to do with clinical trials and also how, um, how they do classifications. They changed a lot of the classification, especially the IVDR changed a lot of that. So there may have been some cases where you didn't have to follow a stringent process, but now you do have to follow one. Yeah. And I, I think, don't quote me a hundred percent, I guess I'll uh, maybe you can confirm this, but I think what I know about the changes with the EUMDR is that if your medical device does have software or is software as a medical device, that the biggest impact is its classification. Uh, I think prior right. to MDR, uh, it was possible for some software to be considered uh, class one. I believe all uh, medical devices that contain software or software as a medical devices are at least class two 
uh, and maybe higher from an, with the new EU MDR. Is that your understanding as well? I, I think so. That sounds, yeah. sounds about right. <clears throat> and I think that might be, you know, some folks might be freaking out because, oh my gosh, it's now uh, a higher classification and that means I have to do more stuff. But let's be real. I mean, you should you should have been doing this stuff anyway, to Kathy's point, even under the EU MDD, the Medical Device Directive, uh, the 62304 and the MDD were, were very much in alignment. And, and I believe the same is true for 62304 and MDR. The classification, you know, certainly does have an impact on, on your ultimate path to market. But at the same time, there was still an expectation that you would have all the software development best practices, lifecycle, and all the documentation, as well as a technical file, regardless of class. So right. I, don't, I don't want you to be up in arms and too concerned about this. But this, this is concerning, I think, to, to some folks who are in the medical device software space. Yeah, and we actually, I, you know, we do have a lot of clients who submit for both. So, you know, they um, submit here maybe in the U.S. first and then then in the EU or vice versa. And that's with software that we've developed using our processes that are compliant. So and we've not had things come back to us, you know, saying, hey, we're missing this big red flag or, you know, anything like that. So. Well, I I think that's the really the the key point in all of this is that. Uh, embracing the the um, six two three zero four uh, criteria f- to help shape your life cycle, software development lifecycle process not only serves you well from from a U.S. perspective, but it also serves you well from an EU and from Canada and Australia and basically anywhere in the world that you're planning to uh, introduce your medical device software. Uh, the six two three zero four framework is going to be good and you're not going to have to reinvent the wheel. You're going to have to do it once and and you'll be well served for all those markets. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. So Kathy, as we, we wrap up, I know we've, we've, we're just skimming the surface on 62304, mm-hmm. but hopefully we've given some folks some, some encouragement, some, a little bit of enlightenment and, and maybe a few uh, things to consider when it comes to medical device software. I guess before we wrap up any Anything that you think is really important for our listeners uh, to to know before we wrap up this episode of the podcast? Just a couple of things that we've already touched on, but just that I want to reiterate that um, it is not waterfall and you can implement it in your life cycle model. Um, You know, it is possible to do that. And the steps to do that, you would perform a gap analysis and, you know, and do a mapping to see, you know, what you're missing, what you already have in place. And that's the first place to start is with that gap analysis. Terrific. And folks, I, I'm very confident that if you have questions about how to um, really shape your internal practices, policies, procedures, when it comes to software development, that uh, Kathy Wilburn and the R&D group would be a wonderful resource for you to connect with. Uh, again, go to the rndgroup.com, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens, all, all uh, easy to find, very easy to find, and, and folks that are experts. So 
I want to thank Kathy Wilburn um, for, for being my guest on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. So, Kathy, thank you. Thanks so much, John. It was a lot of fun. Sure. And folks, as I mentioned earlier, um, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you as well. We uh, our, our mission at Greenlight is to improve the quality of life. And, you know, we know we're, we're helping our customers get life-saving, life-sustaining, life-improving products and technologies to the market faster in a more safe manner while managing risk and all the design and development practices and, and post-market uh, surveillance needs. So uh, if this is something you want to learn more about, I would encourage you again to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about how we might be able to help you. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. There's well over 100, I think in 20 or 130 episodes. So you got some catching up to do. You know, Continue to spread the word about the Global Medical Device Podcast. Share this with your friends and colleagues and continue to, to help make this or continue to keep this Global Medical Device Podcast as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.